0: This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. Whether or not you work in STS, these days we hear an awful lot about data as a transformational force in modern societies. I spoke with Sabina Leonelli, Professor of Philosophy and History of Science at the University of Exeter, about her book, Data-Centric Biology, a Philosophical Study published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Data-centric biology takes up big questions about how practices of collecting, storing, and sharing data over digital platforms have altered the knowledge and values of the modern life sciences. In short, what happens when techniques of handling or interpreting data become scientific contributions in their own right, without regard for testing scientific theories? In order to do this work, Leonelli draws on a broad toolkit spanning philosophy, history of science, and ethnography. So I began our interview by asking her a little bit more about how she developed her interdisciplinary
1: approach. Right, thanks, Mikey. So I am, by training, a philosopher of science. And so I did my PhD originally on how do scientists actually acquire understanding through the manipulation of models and of data in the lab. That was my original interest. And um, in the course of doing that work, I found out two things. One was that um, to be able to produce interesting philosophy and have interesting insights on the practice of biologists, I needed to actually spend some time in biological labs and see what people were doing and understand how they were working on a daily basis. And that meant that I actually got quite a lot of um, social science and historical skills in training to be able to actually do that. So in practice, I learned to do some ethnography, basically, and and did more and more of that work um, after my PhD. And the other thing that came out of uh, my PhD and my postdoctoral years was the awareness that um, while it was very important to think about modeling practices, and a lot of people in philosophy have done that, um, the question around uh, data, data processing, and data curation was something that philosophers had spent actually surprisingly little time thinking about, but which was absolutely central to all the practices and all the activities in the laboratories that I was uh, visiting. And so I started to get involved in how particularly uh, database curators were thinking about data, how they were mobilizing them. And that's basically what got me to think more broadly around the questions around, you know, what does it mean for data to be big or small? And how do people handle data? Under which conditions data uh, generate knowledge? And how we can think philosophically about this.
0: While people have been paying attention to the human-facing aspects of genetics for decades, and if not, on popular organisms like fruit flies or translational ones like mice, Leonelli has spent much of her career following plant biologists. I asked her about what looking at this community has done to shape her work.
1: Well, I was, um, actually this again goes back to my PhD. I was looking for an interesting model organism to study and um, I discovered, in looking around different types of models used in biology, that there had been next to no work, both in the history and the philosophy of biology, on plant biology, and particularly on Arabidopsis italiana, which is the main model in plant science. And that actually looked very strange to me, because of course, plant science is an extremely important part of biology, which has all sorts of different applications. But it turned out to be the case that nobody had really looked into that. And so I started to look at how uh, people were uh, dealing with data and modeling Arabidopsis. And as I got a little bit deeper into that community, I also realized that a very big advantage of looking at plants rather than other types of organisms is that because this is, comparatively speaking, so compared to animals and particularly to rodents, a relatively small um, research community, People who are part of that tend to actually be a little bit more generalist. So people in plants, you know, even people who define themselves as molecular biologists will know quite a bit of developmental biology and will be interested in evolution. That is, alas, not anymore the case in a lot of parts of animal science, where people who specialize in genetics don't necessarily understand much of evolution and don't necessarily necessarily understand much of developmental biology. So it became a very interesting model organism to use to think with a community of scientists which were on one end, of course, carrying out very, very precise projects, say, on particular molecules or on particular molecular pathways, but we're doing this with a very strong awareness of what it would mean and, in fact, how important it was to think about integrating data at the molecular level. with data that were coming from other levels of organization of the plant. The word
0: data might conjure up different images for different people. Outsiders to the day-to-day of high-tech scientific practice could envision a futuristic cityscape in which well-managed information infrastructures and fine-tuned systems enable frictionless flows of people and goods. People who spend their days in the thick of it, however, know that data are messy and context-bound, they possess no inherent or transcendent order. I asked Leonelli to unpackage the work she does so well to show how scientists package data for consumption by others.
1: Yeah, so thank you for this question. So I guess you really are asking two questions. One is what is new about the packaging issue? And the other is actually what, what, what does it mean to even talk about packaging data? So let me start from the latter one. What I wanted to show in the beginning of the book is to bring readers into the world of people who are not so much concerned with producing data in the first first place, and they're not even necessarily concerned with using data as evidence for particular claims yet. What they're really concerned with is making it possible for others to find the data that may be relevant to their inquiry and be able to reuse it. And so that was a part of the trajectory if you want of the data I call them data journeys in this which philosophers really hadn't um, looked at very much but in fact a lot of the biologists i work with also are not very aware of you know how much effort and how much labor does the curation and packaging of data really involve when you're trying to make sure that the data can be disseminated widely and can actually be easily reused by people who may be interested in them So focusing on the packaging was really trying to, if you want, open the black box of what does it mean to disseminate the data. And as it turns out, and as I'm showing, this is not just a question of producing a bunch of data, having them on a little file, and then plugging them in um, computer server, uploading them online, and there you go. (laughs) Because it turns out that actually, first of all, a lot of the data which are produced in model organism biology come in a very wide variety of formats, And they're produced in all sorts of different kinds of conditions. And so to be able to access those data as a sort of single body of evidence or single body of knowledge, you need to, to some extent, standardize them, make it possible for data users, people that go to databases to search for potentially valuable data, to know, first of all, which keywords to use, which parameters to use, but also what kind of information would they find about the data? And how comparable are the data sets that they actually will access? So the packaging uh, structures and mechanisms are doing exactly that. These are sets of practices which allow you to, first of all, think about which format the data that, you're accessing, uh, that you access come in. Secondly, how do you order them and how do you visualize them while ordering them? So how, which kind of data models you produce, use, which kind of tools do you use to um, search through them, and if you want, mine them as a technical term. And also, there's a lot of work going as part of what I call packaging in thinking about which information needs to travel together with the data so that it actually is possible for people who are interested in the data to evaluate what they could possibly mean, and also whether they're reliable or not, and whether they're good quality or not. And these typically are called metadata so information about the data themselves and a lot of work in packaging also goes into thinking about which metadata are actually significant when certain kinds of data travel i mean of course whenever anybody produces a certain bunch of data there's going to be all sorts of information you can give around the provenance of the data where it actually came from which condition under which conditions it was created etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and one has to make a choice about what information specifically needs to be reported in a database so that potential users can use it and uh, will find it significant. So the whole story around packaging is really trying to show what is going on in that process. Now, how is that different from uh, previous activities that were going on in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries? Now, clearly there is a lot of continuity And part of the job that this book is intended to do is to show the continuity and to, if you want, um, take down a little bit the idea that when you talk about big data, you're necessarily talking about something which is completely novel. So it practices around and thinking around how do you order, how do you taxonomize, how do you systematize the data that you have and how do you pronounce claims from that, has been around since a long time. And indeed, uh, one of my colleagues in Exeter, Stefan muller has done a lot of work on uh, Libnean data collecting. And we thought about this a lot together. The one thing that I think makes a big difference in the current um, technological uh, landscape is the availability of the internet. And the fact that with new information and communication technologies, um, the sharing of information can happen pretty much instantaneously. And you can upload a lot of information from lots of different sources in a very, you know, with a very quick turnaround and at the same time. Now, that actually creates even bigger logistical challenges for people who are packaging data. Because it's even more important at that point that you have some sort of common ground, common standards, through which you agree to um, disseminate the data. Otherwise, what you end up with is what people uh, quite technically actually call a data dump. So a situation where you have lots and lots of data of different formats with different information attached to it piled up in a repository and that becomes pretty much impossible to deal with and impossible to search with a digital tool. So I think the big point of uh, difference here is availability of technologies that allow you to disseminate huge quantities of data very quickly, but at the same time, provide you with a potential structure that you need to be able to utilize around how to order the data, how to make them accessible. And of course, this relates to all the different types of mining tools and algorithms that people may be using to search through the data, produce models and provide interpretations.
0: While Leonelli focuses on biological laboratories, she uses the classic analytical move of scrutinizing the micro-macro relationship The way biologists distribute data within a global political economy both reflects and shapes the structure and values of the system at large. I asked her to reflect on the relationship between the norms of the open science practices she studies and their larger political situation.
1: Well, I think that's for me a particularly important question at this point um, in time, because um, while I was writing the book, and in fact, um, also since its publication, have been very involved, increasingly involved in governmental policies around data dissemination, open data and more generally open science. So uh, you get in contact with structures like uh, the governance of um, uh, science academies. And um, the different international agreements that are being made around uh, the ways in which data are standardized, um, the ways in which ownership of the data should be thought about, and uh, the ways in which different governments are agreeing to broker um, agreements between each other on how to join forces, how to um, liberate the data that the researchers are producing, and what to do with that. And one of the things that comes up very strongly from these encounters is the fact that um, thinking about open data and the use of big data for many governments is a very important way into um, trying to give evidence around how transparent uh, their processes are and how reliable and, if you want, reproducible is the science that is uh, sponsored by public research particularly. There is also an increasing interest from uh, industry in being part of some of these discussions, partly because uh, for many corporations particularly, uh, there's been a strong interest in outsourcing some of the work going around data packaging and and data mining to um, public institutions because actually most of the experts which uh, are working on this are working in this transparent way, in this open manner, and collaboratively. And so it's actually it's very much in the interest of um, corporations and industry to take advantage of that expertise so that their data also get managed well. So um, we are in a situation where the fact that there is so much political and economic attention to data as something valuable, but also to the shifting structures of how research gets done in general and how transparent and accountable research needs to be to the public, creates a situation where uh, the whole rhetoric around the dissemination of data, open data, and big data is really shifting in important ways. And my argument in the book is that thinking about these political structures is really important because um, one of the things that has been an obstacle in the past to the dissemination of data and to the reuse of data and to making data publicly available has been the fact that the work put by people, very often technicians, um, into curating data, making it accessible, making it reusable, is typically not really being rewarded within uh, scientific structures. Typically, until now, you have a situation where people get... um, credit and recognition and reputation if they publish very good papers, so very good claims that are supported by data. But whether or not they publish the data attached to those claims, in a sense, is secondary. It's not really been in the spotlight of research until now. Now, and my argument is that's partly for political reasons, we are in a situation where it's much more important to be accountable as a researcher, not just on the claims that you're producing, but also on the ways in which you're managing and sharing data. And this means that people who are attached to those kinds of jobs, so people who are uh, technicians producing uh, the data, people who are in charge of databases and data infrastructures, people who are in charge of data management and data administration, these people are acquiring more and more power and more and more prominence because it is increasingly recognized that their work will have a very big effect, first of all, on which data are actually made visible to researchers, and secondly, on how that data will be interpreted, because the ways in which they're packaging the data actually does affect the content potentially of the claims that are being made. So the argument is that looking at how data packaging and data dissemination is being organized and which in in which ways uh, researchers which are concerned with those areas, and particularly data scientists and data curators, are organizing themselves and making themselves more visible, and also the ways in which this fits into this much broader political environment that favors open science, is really very relevant to try and understand the nitty-gritty of how do researchers interpret data and what kind of data get to become important evidence for claims um, about phenomena and about biology.
0: Befitting a philosophical study, as its subtitle, data-centric biology's second section unpacks what data, experiment, and theory look like under this new regime. The latter two have been subject to scrutiny by philosophers since before we had scientists in the modern sense. But Leonelli's attention to scientific data as philosophically problematic, is at the heart of the book. I asked her how she came to make the distinctions that she puts to work in the book.
1: Yeah, thank you. So this is really the core philosophical idea in the book and it concerns what actually we define as data. Again, I was very surprised when approaching this work that there had been so little work in philosophy of science around the question of what data actually are many people just give it for granted. They think that data are just an observable. You will enter a lab and you will know what the data are. Now, um, this may be true in some respects, but um, particularly now where open data and big data are becoming such important quantities um, in scientific discussions, there can be very different views on what counts as data and what should be seen as other components of um, the research process, such as models, for instance. So I thought it was particularly important at this point in time For a philosopher to have a definition and an approach that allows you to really identify data and distinguish them from other parts of the research process. So the idea here is to avoid thinking of data as something which is um, defined if you want other physical properties. So one school of thought around data would say well data is anything that can be digitized So if something cannot be digitized, then it really shouldn't be talked about as data. Another uh, school of thought says, well, actually data should be anything which comes in numbers, because anything which is not a number cannot really be subjected to particular kinds of algorithms, cannot be analyzed in particular ways, so we really shouldn't think about that as data. And there's yet another school of thought in philosophy that says, well, actually no, data is anything that comes out of an instrument or a machine that you use in a lab. So pretty much anything from pictures to like uh, letters to numbers that may come out of an instrument of observation or an me- instrument of measurement should be counting as data. Now, I thought that there were problems with all three of these positions. Um, and that really came from my observation of all the different ways in which biologists were collecting data and analysing data in a variety of fields. And that led me to the idea that, first of all, it was really quite ridiculous to think about um, data as something that only comes in a numerical or a digital form because there's a lot of work in biology that concerns actual objects, concerns specimens, pictures, diagrams, photographs, and drawings. And all of those elements were elements that I was witnessing biologists using and marshalling as evidence for claims. And it seemed paradoxical to me to get in a situation where you would define data so specifically to only correspond to something which is uh, produced in a particular format. So that didn't quite seem right to me. And also the idea of thinking about data as something that comes out of a machine, which um, somebody famously Ian Hacking used, seemed wrong because it was so limiting. In biology, of course, as in any other sciences, you will have field data, field observations, annotations that come in the form of um, a scribbling on a piece of paper, a a set of observations, a set of notes that you take while doing fieldwork. And those also seem to count as important data for certain kinds of researchers at particular points in time. So given these observations, my inclination became to think about data not so much in respect to their properties as a physical object, but with respect to the function that they have in a particular inquiry. So the relational view states that data are anything that you can identify in the course of a particular inquiry, so in a particular place, in a particular time, as constituting actual or potential evidence for one or more claims about phenomena. And the great advantage of this definition is that the same object can or cannot count a data depending on the situation in which it's used. So it's a very highly context-dependent definition. Of course, you can see it also as relatively broad, but that was really the intention. It, As far as I'm concerned, the relational view gives a very good handle on how to distinguish data within particular contexts of research from other components of, um, of the research process. And that's really pretty much what I wanted. Of course, within that definition, you can start to think about what different types of data there may be and what different functions they can have. But that's really the view.
0: So, a lot of attention is paid to what has been diagnosed as the eclipse of what one might call hypothesis driven science. So, I asked Leonelli to describe what her account brings to this discussion in particular.
1: Yeah, so. Like the question about hypothesis-driven science is one of the questions that brought me to write this particular book, because, um, of course, particularly at the beginning of the 2000s, 2005 or so, uh, people started to think in terms of uh, data-driven versus hypothesis-driven research. And that rhetoric became really strong by the time we got to 2010, 2011. And my intuition here, uh, which I'm uh, trying to support in the book, is that really there is no strict separation between what is a purely hypothesis-driven research and what would be a purely data-driven research. It's very true that in the in environments of what I call data-centric research, the so research that really is concerned with marshalling data and trying to glimpse um, claims from data, um, there is usually not so much a very strict hypothesis you're trying to prove, but typically people approach research with a set of questions in mind or a particular research interest. And they use data mining tools and exploration of data to try and refine their ideas about what actually their question their hypothesis will be. So in that sense, we are not looking at research which is strictly speaking hypothesis driven, because this research is very strongly explorative. And as researchers are exploring their materials, They get to understand more and more what particular uh, questions or particular claims they can make as a result of that. At the same time, the claim of the book is that this is by no means theory free research or research that doesn't relate to any sort of conceptual structures. And this is because there is so much conceptual baggage, but also embodied baggage and baggage around the kind of skills that you need to use in the packaging of the data and the ways in, people are re- in which people are reusing them. And that really strongly determines uh, the kind of claims uh, that researchers are actually able to make on the data. So this was the attempt to try and, um, if you want, break down that absolute distinction between hypothesis-driven and data-driven research and think much more about the different roles that um, questions and concepts and hypotheses and data and modeling tools play during the research process.
0: Whether you're working from John Dewey or Donna Haraway, the notion of situatedness is a common idea within the humanities that gets maybe less attention within contemporary philosophy of science. So I asked Leonelli about what is at stake with her use of this analytic.
1: I got uh, interested in situatedness because this is an idea that a lot of historians and and sociologists of science have arched back to um, for a long time. I mean, the idea that knowledge is situated comes, you know, is related to the work of people like Donna Haraway and several other prominent scholars in that tradition. But researchers in philosophy of science hadn't really picked it up in, in a big way. And there's been more and more acknowledgement in philosophy that there are certain forms of knowledge production which are very context dependent. And in fact, some prominent philosophers of science, such as, for instance, Azok Chang recently, have argued that even thinking about truth and the conditions under which truth can be ascertained and and, um, proclaimed are, to some extent, context dependent and need to be determined in relation to... the situation in which uh, researchers are actually working. But my concern with some of those analyses was the idea that, well, I mean, a lot of uh, uh, philosophers would speak about context dependent of uh, certain process of inquiry or certain types of modeling. But once they would say that, they would basically only talk about the theories that are involved in uh, producing certain kinds of science and pretty much dismiss everything else which is not a theoretical consideration from their account. And this is not to say that they wouldn't think that these elements would be important, but simply that this apparatus that they used of thinking about what is core to a research programme and what is the context of the research programme, meant that actually very similarly to what Kuhn had done, um, they still thought of, or they still think about theories and concepts as the ultimate core of what research is all about. And so these still are the units through which we understand uh, how a certain piece of research differs from another, you know, and what are the main outputs of research. Now, when one takes uh, the view of science, not only as producing claims and producing papers and producing, if you want, propositional knowledge, but also as producing data, things which are not already codified in language, but which are still products of research, and it becomes quite unsatisfactory to think about theories as the only possible unit around which to think about research programs. And so my concern here was to think, okay, well, if we're not in a situation where we're looking at people who are producing theories and and thinking through concepts and everything else is the context, then what is the notion of context doing, and how are we really reformulating the the idea of what is a process of inquiry. So this um, use of the notion of situatedness and situation is an attempt to go away from the idea that there is something like a central core of scientific activities, which is the same at all times, That's what distinguishes what science is, and that's the theory. And then there's all these important contextual elements, which, however, are are sort of peripheral to what science really is. And the attempt is to go towards a view of science which acknowledges the fact that scientific practices are highly diverse. There's going to be some practices which are very, very theory-centric, where the main concern is to produce some axioms or to produce a particular law or description of reality. And there will be other scientific processes where the main concern is to produce data that they, that can document particular phenomena or certain kinds of models that can allow you to intervene on phenomena. So the ideal situation is really to try and think about each process of inquiry as being characterized by a certain situation in which it takes place, and each of these situations to need to be analyzed for what it is at that point in time. So without assuming that the guiding core of an inquiry will always be a concept or the pursuit of a particular hypothesis.
0: Finally, I asked Leonelli to talk about the issues within data-centric science that her framework helps to make visible.
1: I guess um, one good starting point to exemplify this issue is to think about the power of genetic data. This of course has been discussed by lots of different people in HPS and beyond. And it's very clear that the fact that um, sequencing data, particularly, have become such a powerful tool in biology and also such a highlight and such a money generator for the researchers which are working with them has really influenced the ways in which the whole of biology has been shaped in the last 60 or 70 years. And I think it's important to take this historical background into account when thinking about something like data intensive or uh, big data biology because many of the databases and the structures which have been created um, to disseminate data and to analyze data in biology are still very much relating to sequencing data. So the argument I'm making in the book, and I'm sort of following this a little bit historically also, is that that creates a huge path dependence around which data are actually then visible which data become considered to be the important data in biology? And also, this, of course, creates all sorts of exclusions and, all of course, all sorts of different biases in thinking about, well, you know, whenever considering any particular problem, for instance, in, in gene environment interaction, what kind of data should we look for to try and analyze that problem? So, what basically happens is that databases tend to contain mostly sequencing data because they're by far the easiest to shift around and um, also because in a sense the databases have been developed around uh, the very dissemination of gen- genetic data specifically and also they tend to be databases tend to contain data that come from very prominent and very well funded labs who actually have the resources to curate the data so that they can actually go online, and also can benefit from the visibility and the uh, potential recognition internationally that putting your data online may bring. Now, I've done quite a lot of research also recently on the perception of putting data online and uh, that, that, that researchers have who are not working in very um, well-funded labs and who have much less international visibility. And these people typically tend to be much more nervous about what they put online because they think that there's going to be bigger players which are more powerful and are going to be much more capable to reuse their data fast than they would be themselves. And so there's a fear that actually in putting all the data online there's only going to be certain very prominent players which are typically English-speaking, typically based in um, very well-funded Western institutions who will then be taking advantage of the data and get on with their research. So partly, this situation creates um, already quite a strong bias in who will be interested and able to give data to databases and to make them available online. Also, the other bias is in the format of the data themselves. So, I'm particularly interested in imaging data, in fact, and I talk about them a little bit in the book. Now I'm doing much more work on them. And imaging data are notoriously very, very difficult to digitize and particularly to uh, search through digitally. So, but at the same time, these are very, very important data within biology, particularly developmental biology, revolutionary biology. So, there is a sense in which one could argue that databases, as they are set up now, are not necessarily set up to accommodate and welcome some of the most important data sources that we have in biology. But at the very same time, because big data and open data is such a big buzzword, particularly in you know, through funding agencies and uh, policy um, environments, researchers are pushed more and more to try and make use of data which are already already available online rather than creating their own data or trying to use data which are a bit more difficult to find online. That creates a potential vicious circle where you actually create a situation where first of all, only some data sets which are potentially not necessarily the best or most interesting data sets are being reused in biology. But also you create a situation where you may end up systematically excluding um, Researches which have a lot to offer to uh, biological research, and particularly work which is happening more at the morphological and phenotypic level of analysis of organisms, where people are producing data in a variety of different formats, not all of which is digitized, and much of which comes in an imaging format. So, that chapter is an attempt to reflect on some of those um, tensions and try to make sense of the fact that um, these really need to be taken account of when thinking about you know, making the best of the data which are available online and setting up big data analysis. Because far too often right now, and even in scientific circles, and particularly in computer science and data science circles, there's almost an assumption that the data that you will find online are comprehensive. They actually embrace quite a lot of what we know about biological organisms. And once you look specifically at which data sets are actually available, which are the sources from which the data are being taken, you realize that in fact, the data which are available online are very, very few compared to what is actually being produced around the globe. And there is a huge bias to what data are actually online. And this needs to be taken into account.
0: As the leader of a large research center at Exeter, Leonelli has a lot of exciting projects in the works, and I asked her to talk about them as we wrap up.
1: Yeah, so right now I am leading a very large project, which is looking at data practices and particular data curation, but also data reuse across a variety of different fields. So we're looking at lots of different examples within biology, going from plant science to crop science and agricultural science to uh, microbial science and work on fungi. And also we're doing several case studies in biomedicine. So looking at health sciences and situations where you integrate uh, data that come from hospitals, for instance, with data that comes from um, climate science and meteorological stations. And the attempt there is, first of all, to try and see whether the philosophical framework I provided in this book can actually hold in other forms of research. Secondly, to construct a philosophical view about what is the difference between different areas of scientific research and why are they handling data differently if they are and what are the conditions under which this can be um, examined. And part of the interest in doing this work is also we are considering part of our choice of case studies um, embraces both very high level cutting edge laboratories in the UK and in the States but also laboratories and research centers, which are doing extremely interesting research, but they're not located in some of the main power loci, if you want, of the research world. So rather than being located in London, we're looking at experimental field stations, which are located in Nigeria, for instance, or phenomic centers, which are located in Wales, in the UK. So the idea is to try and give um, a much broader view of what are the issues that arise when looking at such a diverse range of research and in looking at what um, philosophical insights you can get from that, both in terms of thinking about what the data are and how they function within research, but also more generally in thinking about the res- how the research process is organized and what, are, what is the difference between different fields.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society on the New Books Network.